since 1971. You're as cold as ice on WRIF. That's Foreigner. Who came before that? Dreaming from the way. Steely Dan with a song that I just do not seem to get tired of. Peg, I love you just the way you are. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. For the first time, Arthur and I were out together. Getting crazy. We're Open out. Hall room. Where were we last night? We were in uh, Royal Oak. Royal Oak. Then I wound up in Detroit somewhere. And then, then I wound up in Inkster. <laughs> then I wound up in Westland. Then I wound up in Taylor. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. All right, backstage here with KK Downey and Glenn Tipton from uh, Judas Priest. Glenn, tell me this now. Did we not, or did we not just spend half an hour in the car park trying to find the way in? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that buzz we draw. If it rocks, it's on the riff in the early part of the 21st century. A really cool band that is hard to classify. Muse. Just a can't-miss band for concerts. And yes, that is loaded with hypocrisy because I missed the band <laughs> yet again. How do I miss these can't-miss shows? For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. This is the home of rock and roll. Go ahead, t- tell me more. Welcome to the podcast, The History of WRIF, in which uh, we are taking a look at the people and the personalities that made uh, Riff so kick-ass cool for almost 50 years. I am Mike Staff. I'm your host, and uh, I was a DJ on the Riff for 14 years, from 1992 to 2006. And uh, joining the podcast today, a couple of guys that you absolutely have to include in personality and the history of WRIF, Jim Johnson, George Beyer, JJ, and the Morning Crew. Hey, guys. Thank you for having uh, us. How's it going? I am so excited uh, to be having this conversation with you. And George, I'm wondering, is this the first time you're real voice has been on the air no you oh really no i uh i did a syndicated bit when i was living up north for a while that went on a lot of small michigan stations oh really so yeah i was me then <laughs> nobody was listening but i was me then so, so you have been hiding up north for a while i was yeah we took the mask off every once in a while though yeah occasionally we went behind <clears throat> the scenes did the old wizard of oz bit behind the curtain yeah. well you know i always wondered because you guys were so hugely successful and Everyone knew JJ because he was on a lot of TV commercials. They obviously knew his name, but you were like, nobody knew your name. Nobody knew your face. Nobody knew who you were. Maybe, that, ju- maybe just as well. <laughs> was that preferred? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, you know, looking back at it, you think, well, maybe that was an added element because of the mystique. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the which guy is Panner Teller, which one never talks, you know. I mean, there's a certain little... Mm, Stick in that in itself. So. And by the way, there are still people out there that uh, believe that the real Dick the Bruiser was actually George. And when he died, it was like, oh, your partner died. I'm so sorry. I'm like, right. no, I no, got, you don't I got a call. I got a call from Frank Beckman about 8, 10, 12 years ago from WJR. And he was calling to make sure that I was alive because some listener called him to say that I had mm. died. And so uh, <laughs> next thing you know, the producer from WJR is calling me up. Is this George Beyer? Yeah, it is. Well, you're not dead. No, I'm not. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> oh, so much to talk to you guys about. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but first, you got to realize how old we are. We got to go. Can we take a pee break? I know, really. <laughs> <laughs> so soon. Well, uh, JJ, been, been in radio for over 40 years. How, is that right? 40 this years? year would be 48. 48 years. That is a long stretch. Yes, it is. And to be in Detroit that long, too, it's got to feel great. Yeah, you know, the old saying uh, from our business in the old days was, uh, 
you keep the big furniture near the door because <laughs> you got to move so often. That's right. I have been very lucky not to have had to done that. Mm-hmm. Not to have had to done that. Jeez. <laughs> to have had to do that. I wish that. there was a broadcaster in here to help me. Station to station, though, we you moved a lot. Well, we did, yes. We both did, yeah. actually. And then The good part was each time was for a raise. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was the key. God bless America. <laughs> Absolutely. What was the famous uh, line from our agent back then? I didn't come here to... Eat the soup. I came here to make my people a deal. (laughs) And don't leave anything on the table. (laughs) Right. So uh, we have so much to talk about. Let's just uh, begin at the beginning. How did you guys meet? Interesting story, and this has been gotten wrong for as long as we have been together. George was working for Steve Dahl. He can go back and uh, give you the beginning of that in a minute. But George and Steve were together on the show uh, and Steve had an offer to move to Chicago by himself, not mm-hmm. with George. We did research back then, too. Explain. and we Wait, Jim. You were program director at W4 at the time. Right. Okay. I was. So when Steve was going to leave, it was my job to find somebody to replace the host or to replace the entire show. But we did research and found that a large piece of the popularity of the show was the character voices that George mm-hmm. had done. So we decided... Let's maintain some continuity, keep George's characters, and find somebody who might be able to work with George. Uh, And 40-some years later, we're still looking to find somebody that could (laughs) fill that role. But what happened was, and it was weird how it worked out, and I don't remember exactly why, but when Steve was offered the job, it uh, was delayed by like a month. They hired him, and his starting date was a month later, and he wanted to keep working here. That's all fine and good. But when we got near the last couple of weeks or so, and he found out that we were going to keep George. He was pissed off. Yeah, he yeah. did not want that to happen. George was his baby, mm. and he didn't want to stay on. I said, so what do you want me to do? Fire George, put somebody out of work because you got a better position? Right. No, we're not doing that. We're keeping him. So he started uh, screwing around with George. Can we say fuck here on this yeah, podcast? It's a podcast. He said, uh, started fucking around with George, turning his mic off yeah, during I, bits. I tried to say something. <laughs> Jim, now turn my goddamn microphone back on, all right? I've been through that once before. Yeah. Right? And, that's, and so he was jerking him around, and uh, I said, I had to talk with him. I said, you got to stop doing that. He's part of the show. Keep him included. Say your goodbyes. Mm. Whatever. So the last week, it's a Sunday night. Since I was a program director and doing afternoon drive at the time, I'm still at work on a Sunday night, crazily, and Steve Dahl calls me up, or George calls me up to say, hey, I just talked to Steve. He told me not to bother coming in this week, his last week. He wanted to say goodbye by himself. So I pick up the phone. I call Steve. We have the conversation. We go back and forth, and he won't budge, and I won't budge. I said, okay, well, you can consider Friday your last day. Come and collect your shit and get out. Mm. That's right. I don't. I don't remember that. I forgot all you about that. Part. You weren't there. I was there no, on a no, Sunday no. night by myself. No, no, no. I remember the part about uh, you know him not turning off the mic, and he was very possessive of the concept of you know uh, characters and a guy on the radio. Well, that you know that goes back for, forever. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, I remember that part. But I don't remember uh, that he told me not to come in. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You called me to tell me that, so well, I, I immediately yeah, called him, and be, then must been true. My phone rang within about a second and a half, and it was our general manager Bartley Walsh, mm. fit to be tied, screaming at me at the top of his lungs. What have you done? What's wrong with you? You're going to ruin everything. Blah blah blah. And I said I explained to him what happened, and he slammed the phone down, and then he called Steve Dahl back. 
And uh, then he called me back and he says, you're right. I just fired that fucker myself. (laughs) (laughs) So I end up sleeping on a couch at the radio station that night because I'm the guy that has to step in on Monday morning in a few hours and do the show uh, with this character. Now, was that just supposed to be a temporary thing? Oh, my God, yes. Absolutely. We uh, searched far and wide. You did? Really? Well, think about this, though. Looking around the country... Locally, we might have had a shot. There just wasn't anybody. But looking around the country at guys who are available to come in and host a morning show. Okay, so here's the deal. You're going to come in. You're going to be working with an old cartoon sailor. You're going to be working with a retired, washed-up wrestler. Um, and a, a few other. Announcer, and, yeah, and, and, and the mayor of the city of Detroit. Right. Those are going to be I mean, your guys. The city of Detroit. I had to say that, of course. <laughs> Being here in the city, I had to say that. It's so it was not a good fit for anybody. Meanwhile, weeks and weeks go by, and I'm still doing the damn show, and things start gelling a little bit. Hmm. So we continued on, and I told Bartley Walsh, I'll do this for one year. I'll be uh, your morning show guy, and I will do the programming job, but for one year, and then we'll reevaluate everything. Well, a year goes by, and literally, I was ready to take myself out. I was done. I was washed up. I was frazzled. I said to Bart Walsh, I said, okay, here's the deal. I want to do mornings, but I don't want to be program director and I won't accept anything else. Otherwise, I'm going to go sell shoes at Nordstrom. You're at the end. You should have taken the shoe gig. I know. I should have been (laughs) retrospect. Damn. Everything's in hindsight. You're Monday morning quarterbacking over there. I (laughs) am. I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, God, I had to work, sold the shoes. Yeah. (laughs) Knowing what we know now. Anyway, um, he lit me up once again, saying it's the stupidest thing I could ever think of. There's no future in being a radio personality. Mm. Management is where you want to be, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, take it or leave it. So he said, okay, we'll take it. And we got somebody else to do uh, the programming job. And uh, uh, I did mornings, and uh, the rest kind of is history, as the cliche goes. That's incredible. So, George, you were calling in to Steve Dahl's show when he was still on ABXO, right? Yeah. I won a uh, talent show that he did, the Steve Dahl Gong Show. Mm. And what was the prize, by the way? I won, uh, what was their frequency? <laughs> they were 99, right? 99? Yeah, 99. 99. Five. I won 99 and a half records. Oh, <laughs> it's true. Most of them were, you know, just shitty groups with their... Uh, oh, they were promo their, copies yeah, that he got course. for free anyway. Test pressings that they dropped off to the radio stations back then, you know, to get airplay, blah, blah, blah. So there were only uh, maybe a dozen that made my playlist at home, you know. <laughs> but I was at Wayne State University taking radio, TV, and film. I was on uh, WAYN. Uh, you know, doing an afternoon show there. But, yes, I was calling in to Steve. And then when Steve uh, switched from WABX to W4, well, it was convenient for me to stop in on the show because it was on my way down to school. Right on Jefferson. So I stopped down there a couple times a week, this and that and the other. Next thing you know, I'm doing a bit here and a bit there. Da, 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 da. We go to opening day at uh, Tiger Stadium back then, and I just, I'm in the ballpark so that I, I react to my environment. So the next thing you know, I'm George Kell, and I'm, you know, I'm doing the play-by-play of the ball game. All these people from W4, the staff, they're cracking up. Hey, you ought to do that on the air. So I started doing that on the air, this and that and the other. And every, all these characters just kept adding on I was, because, like I said, I react to the environment. I'm a Detroiter from day one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it worked out that way. Next thing you know, I'm on with Steve full-time, 
And then when uh, Jim came in in Steve's absence, then they gave me a raise, and uh, then I knew, and I quit school. It was a, oh, so you quit school? Uh, well, you didn't graduate? I, no, I didn't quit school. I turned pro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you kids out there, you stay in school. But if you're 17 and you can run a four four three forty, right. you turn pro, buddy. Yeah, because you might get injured. That's right. You, right. you, you, could, you never get, know. You could get hurt. Now, JJ, you went to Central. Did you graduate from Central? Uh, no. You didn't. I did not know. In <laughs> fact, you, you turned pro. You I turned, turned pro too. With about three classes to go. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> and I've often uh, gone back there. I, I bet I've been back there three or four times trying to figure out a way that I could make it happen, right? Even at my old yeah. age. Just well, those well, three three credits. But you know what stands what? in the fucking way? What's that? Algebra. Oh, <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> let me graduate without passing algebra. an algebra. I flunked it twice. Boy, you well, think they just give it to you? Yeah, you think? Well, maybe with, with a sizable donation, you right? Could, you, could, <laughs> yes. you could get a janitor's closet named after that you or something. That ain't gonna happen. The James A. Johnson uh, janitorial department or janitor's. Closet. I have many other places for sizable donations. <laughs> mm. <So> Whoa! <laughs> quit bragging, Jim. So, how long were you guys on W four before Rift came calling well, together? Let's see, I can remember the timeline. We started in January of seventy eight. And we left there in July of 79. So only about a year and a half at W4. That's right. From 79 to 86 at Riff. Mm-hmm. From 86 to 92 at Wheels. Wheels. Yeah. And then from 92 till, for me, till 2008. Yeah. And I don't know, you retired in what, 04, 90, 05, 06? 98. No. no. 98. No. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah. Started there in 92. Worked there till 98. I was there 10 years after you left? You were there a long time after I was. But the Jeez. funny thing about this, when you figure it all out, we were at several stations longer than we were at the Rift. Yeah. But people still say, well, oh, you are the guys from Rift. Well, that's it, it was because, you know what? It was not only our wheelhouse at that time, it was our listeners' wheelhouse well, because that. we were all the same age. They weren't uh, bogged down with work and families, they had more free time. And their interests were a lot different, and they were able to glom onto the stupid shit that we were doing. Yeah, right. They were, that doesn't happen anymore. No, it was, it was definitely active listenership. I mean, they came to our events. They uh, they hung on for our bits. You know, as nowadays, geez, you go to a commercial, you know what happens. Sure. You know, and thank goodness our audience was, they were very kind or accepting of loyal. us. Because, and loyal. Loyal as can be, yeah. because, yeah, hey, coming up, we got Meet the Bruiser coming up. Coming up, we got the mayor coming up. We used to do our bits on the opposite side. Of the ads mm. to hold people through. Right. Coming up. Well, you must have been doing those these voices, I, uh, Dick the Bruiser, in high school. I was doing Dick the Bruiser in high I was doing all my high school teachers. I was doing <laughs> you know, TV characters when I was... He meant he was doing their voices. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what he thought when he first heard you doing him. Yeah. I, well, he did. I was still in one piece. <laughs> And he was cool. You know, he liked it. I he guess liked he, the notoriety. He, he, it was a resurgence yeah. of his personality, his career. He yeah. was on the backside of the roller coaster by right. then. And the funny thing of that is, too, after he did a little bit of work with us on the radio, he started doing that with uh, some of the guys in Indianapolis where he lived. Mm. So he became, you know, a rock and roll, rock and roll wrestler. <laughs> As we took over the FM house, Riff began to grow and change. The staff doubled and then tripled. And to make room for everyone, they found four house trailers and banged them onto the side of the house. And the days of the trailers began. And Riff became Detroit's best rock. 
This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. Riff Mornings now feature the madness of J.J. and the morning crew. Are you sure you know where everything is? You know, all the buttons, there's three turntables in the studio here, the green buttons over here. Okay. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. What's this button do, Chip? No, whatever you do, don't touch that button. Yeah, knucklehead, that turns the whole station off. Oh, really? Keep your hands off that button. That's why there's a cage over the top well, of it. said air talk. Yeah. Well, I meant to talk on the air. No, don't touch that button. I told you not to touch that out. button. Leave it alone. Here is Mike Staff and our special guests, JJ and the Morning Crew. When you guys got to Riff, that was like the the building of what I always refer to as the first all-star team on Riff. Yes, but that was a recipe. That was a formula that, it was. that, that they Fred and Tom put together. Right? No. no. That was an ABC formula oh. around the country, primarily for TV. You're probably not old enough to remember the old campaign, and there were billboards all over town with the talking heads on Channel 7 uh, from the they did research and they found out everybody's favorite news guy, co-anchor, weather person, mm. sports guy, etc. And they went to the other stations and assembled that team. And then they put billboards all over town. Mm. I still remember the slogan, we got who you wanted. Oh, that's good. And it was really good. And they put together an all-star team. Tom Bender and Fred, they just uh, transferred that formula oh, to see. the radio side of things, and they brought us over. They brought Calvert in and Savelli. Penn Hollow was already there, of course, and he was strong. Yeah, it was strong, and the lineup was strong, and ABC had money. Oh, yeah. And they weren't afraid to put it on the on advertising commercials on TV with the remarkable mouth. Oh, that was one of the best ever. It was. And, you know, Arthur Costan, well, uh, uh, Karen Savelli and Calvert all said that they could just Feel the momentum building. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It happened you, almost instantaneously. I mean, it, to tell you the truth, sports analogy it was the New York Yankees. I mean, you went top to bottom through that lineup, and everybody, everybody was a hitter. Everybody was a player. I mean, everybody played their part, and every part was unique. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was great stuff. It had to be exciting. What do you guys remember most about those early, early days when that team got together? Because you you knew everyone. Maybe. We liked each other. Right. Again, we're all the same age. We. You know, if we had families, they were new families, and, you know, we had a lot of independence, and we actually liked each other, and we did fun stuff together, mm-hmm. whether it was concerts or uh, promotional events or whatever. We usually did it all together. No matter what your day part was, right. we kind of gathered and assembled. And I remember one of my favorite times, George will remember this like the back of his hand, the real Dick the Bruiser came to town, and we were going to shoot some TV commercials, so we took him to the Detroit Zoo. <laughs> Actually, I think that was later in the deal. I remember Bruiser. There were several stories we could tell you about Bruiser coming into town. Yeah, we took him to the Detroit Zoo. And yeah, then, but all of us were there. The whole yeah. Oh, yeah, we did that commercial. Crew. That's right. We did the There's Good Rockin' at Riff. That was that was the bit. Hey, hey, there's Good Rockin' at Riff. Like Good Rockin' at Midnight was, was the tune. <laughs> right so. the- but he had us push him around in a wheelchair the entire way. We're walking around the zoo, and the bruiser insisted. <laughs> he just did a wheelchair. Like I got my big lollipop here. JJ can push me around. Make sure I don't get lost. <laughs> now, was the, the bruiser character, was that in play before you got to Riff? That was still. Yeah. Like, was that a Steve Dahl thing? That, that it was. was. That was, was Steve Dahl's bodyguard. Yep. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, the original concept was Dick the Bruiser was Steve Dahl's bodyguard. Now, I was doing Dick the Bruiser for Steve off the air, and he's what the hell's that? Well, again, being from Detroit, I knew because when I was six years old, I was watching Lord Layton on Channel 9 with you know, Dick the Bruiser and the, and the Sheik and all those guys. 
So I told Steve about the, you know, the, the kind of the history of the character. And he said, well, that's great. Let's, let's, let's get him in the studio. I'll make him my bodyguard. <laughs> but another bruiser story is when we took him in, into, uh, or he came into town to shoot an ad and we took him to the London Shop House. Oh, God. Which was a, mm. the fine steak house of Detroit back in the day. And you had to wear a tie to get in. <laughs> bruiser didn't travel with a tie, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> I'm not wearing any tie. <laughs> But the doorman had a tie for him, so he wraps this tie around his neck, his 22-inch neck, and he's got about four and a half inches of tie. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he goes wobbling through the restaurant, everybody's looking at him, and he orders up a steak and blah, blah, blah. They bring out half of a cow. I swear, a half of a cow as red as a Coke can and put it on the plate in front of him. And everybody's talking, of course, you know. What's going to happen now? You know, Something's going to break out you know, with a bruiser around but. Another time, I was uh, he was in town for an auto show, and I was supposed to pick him up at his at the hotel Pontchartrain. I went down, I parked the Kobo, and I was walking tr- across the street to the hotel. I thought, oh, gee, maybe he's already at the Rift booth. So I just asked a cop. I says, hey, have you seen the Bruiser? He says, hold on a second. He gets on his radio. Where's the Bruiser? He's still in his hotel <laughs> in Detroit. They kept track of where That's he awesome. was. <laughs> now, explain to our listeners who Dick the Bruiser was, because there's probably a lot of people listening that aren't even really familiar. Well, again, he was an old wrestler <laughs> from the days when wrestling was real. Mm-hmm. Long before the WWE. Yeah. Way when the W, it was the WWF a. even then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Way before that. Yeah. So, I mean, he was a wrestler from the 60s, I would say, would, would have been his heyday. And he was an absolute monster back then. He was known as the world's most dangerous wrestler. But what I liked about him when I was watching the wrestling shows as a kid was the interview. Mm. Because the interview, that's when the, that's when the wrestler really has to perform. And Bruiser had that voice. And he'd come out and, this is fair warning, Color Kowalski. Everybody saw you cheat the last match. It's my time to get even Saturday night at the air-conditioned Cobo Arena. <laughs> True stuff. <laughs> Were you? You must have been doing those these voices, uh, Dick the Bruiser, in high school. I was doing Dick the Bruiser, and I, I was doing all my high school teachers. I was doing you know TV characters when I was. Uh, he meant he was doing their voices, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even catch myself on that one. Mm-hmm. Dick Dick the Bruiser was such a beloved uh, character, person, kind of one of each, right? In Detroit. Um, I'm I'm curious what he thought when he first heard you doing him. Yeah, I well he didn't. I'm still in one piece, <laughs> and he was cool. You know, he liked it. I he guess liked he, the notoriety. He, he, it was a resurgence yeah. of his personality, his career. He yeah. was on the backside of the roller coaster by right. then. And the funny thing of that is, too, after he did a little bit of work with us on the radio, he started doing that with uh, some of the guys in Indianapolis where he lived. Mm. So he became you know a rock and roll, rock and roll wrestler. <laughs> well, you know what's cool too is um uh so he was in like Indianapolis or something like that, which is where David Letterman is from, and he took the name of his band, the da- most dangerous the band, most dangerous band, yeah, from exactly from right, Dick the Bruiser. Another footnote: if you go on YouTube and you uh, you know search for Dick the Bruiser, there's some great old stuff of the old guy doing the interviews. Yeah, no doubt. We're having this match. The people of Muncie, Indiana, deserve this. We could have had it in Tokyo. We could have had it in New York. But the people of Muncie, Indiana, at the high school at 7 o'clock, 
So my itty bitty bruiser buddies don't have to stay up till late. <laughs> Translation: The janitors charge more when they stay there after nine. <laughs> right. <laughs> but fun stuff. Fun stuff. And it was the classic match was always the bruiser and the sheik. And the mm. sheik was a guy who lived at Lansing, wasn't it, George? I think up in Williamsburg. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we get this big promotional event. We're going to do. The Bruiser and the Sheik, the final rematch at well, Olympia mm-hmm. at the time. Rock and roll versus disco. Right. Well, that's right. true, too. Ooh, which, you know, we've got to talk oh, about yeah, that. Oh, yeah, we've got to talk about it. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> we show up, and George and I are in tails and top hats. We're the <laughs> ring announcers for this thing, right? We go backstage, and we see the two of these guys with a razor blade slicing each other's foreheads for them, and then they dry it all out, and then they go out and wrestle, and in the middle of the match, one of them would take the butt of his hand on the other guy's forehead to open up those little wounds so they would bleed all over everything. It's <laughs> die hard. You know, when you're sweating, you're going to bleed a lot. It's oh, like right. if you nick yourself shaving. You know, it's, it's no big deal. Long before the advent of AIDS or any of that stuff oh, that sure. people were worried about, right? Little window into the backstage uh, world of pro wrestling. Right. You be careful now. I, I did not say any of that. I, I That was Jim Johnson. I know everything that happens in that square circle is real. Right. And those are highly trained professional athletes, so don't try this at home. Uh, that was Jim Johnson's interpretation. <laughs> so with all the voices that and characters that you brought to the show, Dick the Bruiser was definitely the most popular. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, JJ, in, in the world of research back then, did you do research and said, hey, man, Dick the Bruiser is resonating. Let's go with him. Nah, better question. Okay. You know what? Because back then... You'd hear it on the street. Oh, sure. And, and you know, honestly, um, radio... Radio is a feel. It's an art form. You mm-hmm. kind of feel the love in the air one way or the other, and you do what you yes. know is right. You Absolutely. know your audience. You know your partner. You know yourself, and you know what the right thing is to do. You don't need a bunch of bullshit mm-hmm. research mm-hmm. from pencil hey. neck geeks and coats and ties <laughs> here, here. and right. Philadelphia and New York telling you what's right and wrong. Here, here. I listened to uh, podcast number one with Arthur Penhall, mm-hmm. and it's the exact same thing when he was talking about it's the weekend. Yeah. I mean, that was his gig, or the <clears throat> home of rock and roll, or baby, or whatever mm-hmm. it was. That was right for him. wasn't right for everyone else. Right. And, you know, Dick the Bruiser was right for us. Probably wouldn't have right, been right anywhere else, you know. But it sure resonated here. Yeah, it was big time. There's no doubt. Big and, time hey, look, <laughs> hey, look, and by the way, let's uh, be honest, and I'll be the first to say this. There's a lot of fucking luck involved in mm. this. Oh, yeah. A lot of luck. Right place, right time. Yeah. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Amen. Bro. I guarantee you. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the parody songs that Dick the Bruiser Band did were, I mean, people ate that stuff up with a spoon. And that uh, was all George. It was all George. All you, George. You wrote all those, all those songs? Every word. I wow. take great pride in the fact that I wrote all the stuff, I mean, you know, 90% of the stuff. That's incredible. From, from yep. the ground up. Yes. I, did, I didn't use other sources. Mm. What you heard, you heard on, on the riff or at wheels or wherever we were working, you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Right. When you were driving through Detroit and you had the radio on and you heard us, you knew you were in Detroit. Right on. Too many beer drops for one man to be drinking. Too many beer drops for one bladder to pass along. School's out now. It's summertime. Time to party And I ain't lying 
Were those songs uh, ever released as singles? I, I do remember oh, some yeah. of those on like a Harmony House and things yeah, we like put that some stuff on vinyl for charity. And did, how many did they sell? You have any idea? Oh God, uh, who knows? Twenty, thirty thousand, okay. I want to say. Oh yeah, I, 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 I mean, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to begin to guess yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, who knows? And they're still selling because I get people asking me all the time, "Hey, you know, where can I get a copy of this?" I say, "Yeah, yeah, hey, look, hey, I got go an look idea. on the internet." Internet. The GoFundMe page. <laughs> the history of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. Get up to join. It's a new day in the Motor City with JJ and the Morning Crew on the Riff. wonder what it would be if you had the internet, you had the content distribution methods that they have now, what that might have looked like. Well, to this day, I mean, I'm walking out of the mall the other day, I'm hearing the uh, the tail end of Don Henley's Boys of Summer, and I'm, I had to scratch my head, what's the real words? And out on the road today, I saw a moose head sticker on a Cadillac, yep. and I, I'm like, what's the real words there? What's the real words? <laughs> He's ruined those songs for <laughs> right. a lot of people, and, and not just me. And it was, but, a, it was a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. Right. Was, <laughs> I, 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 had to, I had to look that up on the that internet. so funny. Yeah. Because, you know, that was going on in my head. Out on the road today, I saw a moose head sticker on a Cadillac. No, fatter, I, I, fatter, fatter. <laughs> all of that. And, and, and I, the other day I played, I said this on the air, actually, I played to Gary Newman's Oh, cars, cars. Bars. and the whole thing, all I'm thinking of is in bars. <laughs> that was a stupid song. Dude. Throw <laughs> up on the wall <laughs> in bars. <laughs> that was a force. That was a stupid song, but whatever. No, well, it was. It resonated. People still like that song. Yeah, bars was better than cars. There's no question about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Cars was not a great hit. Were those songs uh, ever released as singles? I, I do remember oh, some man. of those on like a Harmony House and things yeah, like that. Yeah, we put some stuff on vinyl for charity. And d- how many did they sell? Do you have any idea? Oh, God. Uh, who knows? 20, 30,000, okay. I want to say. Oh, yeah. I, 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 
I mean, I don't. I wouldn't even know where to begin to guess yeah. about that. Yeah. Um. Who knows? And they're still selling because I get people asking me all the time. Hey, you know, where can I get a copy of this? I say, yeah, yeah, hey, 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 I got go look idea. on the internet. Internet. The GoFundMe page. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Maybe we can make some money. Yeah. On right. This. Do you own all those songs? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, yes, I own every one of them. He owns the lyrics, not the music. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, you don't want to get into publishing. Do you and... know how many songs you did? I don't. No I idea. Really don't. Who was the band in the Dick the Bruiser band? Usually employees from the mm-hmm. radio station. Uh, Hostan was, was a guitar player. Right? player. Mark Pazman, who was a very accomplished right. guitar player. Yeah, he's great. So when we were working at the same station, those guys... And we had Tavis Markham over at Wheels, who is our producer there. He he was oh, yeah, a bass player. So whoever's working, we would comb the bowels of the radio station, as it were, looking for talent. And sometimes we found some, and sometimes we didn't, but we went with it anyway. <laughs> Tom Dalton, who was an employee, was a drummer? Mm. Tom Dalton, who now is well-known for uh, Under the Radar mm-hmm. on PBS. So, yeah, there were... Town from everywhere. And then you had a lot of gigs. Like the Dick the Bruiser band became a pretty in-demand type of act, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. It was in-demand. They demanded that we get the hell out of <laughs> yeah. there. We, 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 we ran up a couple of bar bills. We forced ourselves on more dive bars in this town than I care to count. Hey, yeah, but hey, how about opening for Cheap Trick at Pine Knob? Yeah. How cool. I mean, that was... That was probably the highlight. Costan was telling me the first time the Bruiser Band played live was at Pine Knob for Motor City Jam with was Ryder, I, Mitch Ryder. I, I, I don't know. I don't remember that. I thought the first time was at Heart Plaza. Heart Plaza, Plaza is what I was yeah. going to oh, say. Okay. Heart, Heart Plaza, Plaza when there was the Fat Cat Strut Tour. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> the Straight Cat Strut. There's another Strut damn song you ruined for me, goddammit. Fat <laughs> Cat Strut. I'm a ladies cat. A chubby cat. Stop it. I still have to play this shit, dude. Funny that you know all the lyrics still, you remember. Well, yeah, I just whatever. Wait a you minute, know, I'm though. Like the, we can't, I'm like we Pavlov, can't, and you know, when the dog hears the bell, he starts salivating, and you know, I get going here. We can't uh, talk about this kind of stuff without mentioning one of the greatest highlights of our career. 1984, the Tigers go 35-5 mm. and five to start the season, and they're playing that stupid John Denver, thank God I'm a country boy song when they went to sweep off the base paths in the fifth inning, and we thought, this thing sucks. Let's get the Tigers to get rid of the song, and we're going to find something to replace it with. So George wrote, Dancing, Dancing in the, the Seats, <laughs> like Dancing in the Streets. Right. We get a hold of Martha Reeves of the Vandellas, nice. convince her to do a duet and record the song with George. She shows up with Linda Solomon, the photographer. Linda Solomon's husband was an agent for Martha Reeves. They show up at a studio, uh, Pearl Sound, wow. out in Farmington or Livonia by limo, and we spent two hours trying to coax Martha Reeves out of the limo. She got cold feet. She oh, didn't really? want to do it. Oh, yeah. I can't sing anymore. I don't have a voice. I don't know who this stupid <laughs> asshole is. <laughs> this guy's going to ruin it. She didn't even know. He's going to ruin my image. You yeah. Know? So we finally get her in. And God damn it, if she didn't do it in one take wow. and it sounded like a million dollars. If you can find that song, it's worth exploring uh, it, on this podcast. You know, it, where it, took it, is? Me, it took me 30 takes to do the backup because I'm not used to singing backup. I was used to the lead. I was stepping on her all the time. Damn it. You but don't have was, a copy of that, George? It was huge. It's around somewhere. <clears throat> I, I may. Um, but the uh, sideline to that was um, it got so big that J.P. McCarthy, who was you know the, the biggest radio guy ever in Detroit, probably, mm-hmm. and JR. Uh, on WJR and doing mornings opposite us, he calls up. He says, I want to play that on my air. <laughs> 
So I grabbed a copy of it and I drove down the highway and went up to the top of the Fisher building. Yeah, and, that's uh, awesome. I might have it somewhere too. We'll see if we can find it. We'd love and to find I met that. the guy and he, and he played it. That's amazing. And, here's and it's the, unheard of for I mean, another competing morning oh, show yeah. to do that's something what I mean. like it was, that. It was bigger than the, than the station. It was, it, was bigger. It, was a, it was part of the Tiger thing. It was yeah. part of the Tiger energy that was going on in the city at the time. So, yeah, what the heck? And All did right. the Tigers play it during the 7th? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that part never worked. But no. It started, didn't matter. It had, didn't matter. By then, they had more we, success with John Denver. So. Right. <laughs> we milked that thing on our air. It was huge for us. didn't that's, matter whether the Tigers played right. it or not. That would have been... You know, the icing on the cake. But I will say this, as we put a bow tie on on this part of the conversation, we learned along the way. It took us a long time, but we do those parody songs and we would do every lyric, every verse, every chorus. And these things would go on for three, (laughs) four, five, six fucking minutes. And all of a sudden you want to tear your goddamn hair out when about 40 seconds of it would have been just fine and you could have moved on. Right, it had to take a long time to write those songs. I mean, you know, what, one, one thing that listeners don't really get is on a four-hour morning show, you have got how many hours into show prep? 10, 12, maybe more hours into show prep? Joe did, uh, George did. I had about five minutes of show prep. With Jim, you're talking about minutes, all right? <laughs> yeah, show prep for me would be Bloody Mary and a Terryton. Let's go, George. You ready? What do you got today, George? That's the luxuries of the straight man, right? <laughs> yes. You know, the straight man always looks good, and it's the uh, second. It's my job to make the straight man look good. I mean, that's the deal. But that's okay. Keep that in mind for the rest of this podcast, will you? I try to make you look good. Yes. <laughs> so, so let's talk about disco and what was going on in Detroit with the disco rage because that really was um, was a thing when you guys first got to riff. Steve Steve Dahl kind of stole it and went to Chicago with it. Arthur was already railing against disco right. on the riff. So let, let's talk a little bit about. Yeah. That. To be fair, I will give Steve Dahl credit for um, somewhat initiating that. Uh, but we were all on the same page, and George and I uh, equally as much here in Detroit at the time. And it was about exactly the same time that we jumped on board. It was like, should this, we, sh- this shit just sucks. Should we talk about what the original name of the group no, was, George, or no, let we, that go? We should let that go. <laughs> all right. There are some things all that right. just, That's just fine. don't I get play. You. But and we, we sat down and we said, what are we going to call this movement? What are we going to call this movement? And gosh, we had all kinds of things, you know, when... I don't know how it happened, but we landed on dread. Mm-hmm. Detroit rockers engage in the abolition of disco, and I, the abolition part, I don't know. I, you needed an A. You needed an A. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So uh, yeah, we landed on that, and man, it was huge. That was, was huge. And you know, I, I think about it too because I'll be driving around and I'll I'll hear JJ on WOMC one hundred four point. Whatever. Thank you, George. Thank you for and the plug, George. And, and he'll, be, he'll, be, he'll be playing Casey in the Sunshine Band. And I'm thinking, I'm going to drive my ass over there, and I'm going to hook his gonads up to the, to the, the, the battery on my Jeep with my jumper cables and give him a little zap. What the hell? But then I got yeah, because that was the punishment, by the way, for we'd our, we'd oh, the, our yeah, that was right on the card. We'd have our listeners chair. turn in their neighbors, coworkers, or family members for listening to disco. We'd call those people up and we'd give them the electric chair. Nice. Now, <laughs> to be fair, it's kind of like the flu. You know, you don't want to have the flu, but every once in a while you get a flu shot, right? Mm. And it puts just a little bit of the flu virus in you to make you stronger. 
So when Jim plays KC the Sunshine Band, he's doing his part for my immune system. You know, right. like, like they have memorials you know, by uh, disaster areas too. You know, just to make sure to remind the public how bad things really could be. So when you hear my good buddy JJ. A WOMC 104 <laughs> Detroit hits playing KC in the Sunshine Band. Call him. Give him help. When, when you guys came up with Dread, was the idea to have a Dread card, or did that come later? That came later. So, But not that much later, honestly, to tell you the truth. We made a bit out of it, and then I, it, it was pretty quick thereafter that we thought, well, maybe a membership card into well, yeah. this club, because we saw it growing so quickly. Right. And let me tell you something, and and that was the bane of our existence, because... Once that part of our career was over with, all we ever heard in our meetings with program directors, what's the matter with you guys? Dread. You've got to come up with another fucking dread. Oh, you guys yeah. are sucking. You've yeah. got nothing. What have you done for us lately? Oh. Dread was fine, but you need another dread, <laughs> and you need it by Monday. Yeah. yeah. So come up with something. All right. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, okay, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm real, any ideas? I'm, I'm, real cre- I'm real creative now. You know? <laughs> but that's part of the magic, that you can't recreate like that. It just yeah, doesn't work. Tell that, that to management, yeah, will you? Right, that's exactly. a good point. Well, you know. Do you remember how many dread cards were distributed? Oh, God in heaven. <clears throat> Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. At yeah. least, yeah. Do you, Jim, when was the last time somebody came up and showed you their dread card? Two days ago. I bet. Every single day. <laughs> no, it is there's, really. a, there's paper ones and plastic ones and... And I don't know if I even have mine somewhere, but some guy came up and personalized a few for the staff members made out of like Tim. aluminum. Yeah, they were like they looked wow. like platinum yeah. metal yeah. copies the, of the it. Platinum dread card. That's right. <laughs> save, <laughs> platinum save even more. Execute <laughs> execute even more people who listen to this. But we breathe. That's another. That's another way that we breathe the new life into the whole concept. Uh, once the disco thing was done and we successfully killed it, and by the way, we put a radio station out of business mm-hmm. in this in this town. And the general manager, I can't remember his name right now. Oh my God, he was pissed. He was calling our guys, saying, "You got to cut these guys are killing me." And uh, you know, too bad. Yeah, yeah. it's a competitive radio so, market. But once that whole thing was done, we thought, well, how do we take advantage of all of these cards that are out there? And we worked with advertisers mm-hmm. to offer discounts. To anybody who showed up with a dread card for their purchase, you got a free Coke with a Coney dog or something like that, yeah. whatever it was. So we changed the name, not from dread, it stayed dread, but it was uh, Detroit area rockers, uh, Detroit, Detroit rockers, rockers engaged in the acquisition, acquisition of discounts. discounts. <laughs> yes, there's the A word for that there you one. Go, asshole. <laughs> the A word. <laughs> but, anyways, it was like the first um, rewards card, you know? Uh, as far as a marketing tool goes. Well, and it's you, it was very take, cool of ABC because, again, they had cash and they were willing to flip the bill for something like oh, that. Yeah. A lot of companies would not have done that. You bet. And it just, it lives. Hey, they made money. Don't worry. Oh, I am sure. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they paid us well, but they made money while we were there, believe me. You ever count how many different character voices were a normal part of the show? Uh, no, there was a core. And then, you know, some would come and some would go. I mean, uh, I we would add it's necessary when Ross Perot was running for president. Mm. You know, he'd be, he became character, see? Well, let's get under the hood and fix it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we had Dr. Ruth on for a while when she oh, was yeah. hot. Uh, <laughs> this and that and the other. When she was hot? Like, well, I not, we've, <laughs> not, yeah, I've always said, Dr. Ruth, you are so hot. <laughs> Man, I love, it when you, I love it when you say, what a awesome. <laughs> I bet there's characters out there we, we both have forgotten that passed through. Yeah, this show over the years. Yeah. Sure. 
Um, I, I always marveled at your ability to have this conversation with yourself, essentially using two, three, four different voices. I do a lot of things with myself. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you do it? Do you even know? Like, uh, could you even describe it? I, it's really hard um, hard to describe how something like that works. I mean, you know, I asked Ted I Nugent. can describe asked, it. It scared the shit out of me. I bet. Asked, asked I'm Ted watching Nugent. this guy talk to himself. Like, well, I had uh, to confuse you, too. Ask Ted Nugent how he plays a guitar solo. Right. And he goes into it, and that's what he does. He's sure. mastered the instrument, and then he just lets it fly, I think. Right. I, I don't think he's rehearsing every little deedle, 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 wee. Of no. course, yeah. He's just out there, and it, and it comes out. Well, it came out beautifully. And, uh, Jim, you couldn't have been a better straight man. I mean, you had to have that kind of uh, clarity, and you were so casual and cool. But it had to, like, blow your mind sometimes he trying was, to keep he, up. He was my rock. yeah the same rule applies for the straight guy though it just came out yeah i didn't rehearse it i didn't you know this all was uh, a new thing you know i was supposed to be a program director Mm. not a morning show host that worked out just uh right place right time for both of us actually coming up (laughs) it was a it was an educational thing the michigan state police were doing uh, about the uh, uh, you know the effects of drinking and driving, so they came in with a breathalyzer machine, and George's job was to drink. So and drink I did. For real? Shots, <laughs> yes, on yeah. the air shots, and then every I don't know fifteen minutes, half hour, hour, whatever the bit was with these guys, and they'd measure us, and, mm. it, and they'd say, "Okay, well here it is," and then he'd have to perform some field, kind of a test, sobriety test. Nice. So at the end of the day. <laughs> Like eight forty in the morning, he's had I don't know how many I'm, shots I'm by blotto, then. He is blotto, he's I'm, gone. I'm, I'm doing about a point two two right then, and, and I'm, I, even then I'm saying you know enough. I, I don't think I can take any right, more. right, and and so, but he still has to do meet the bruiser uh, the whole like two or two and a half three minute long well, dissertation about drunk driving i think it was it's a minute and a half normally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. And now, the ABC News program, Meet the Bruiser. Here is Richard T. Bruiser. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. Use the buddy system. Since there are so many parties, it's unlikely you hear wild at every, everyone and still survive. Therefore, hang out with a friend and alternate driving and drinking. This, it's safer, plus you'll have lots of laughs. Plus you'll have lots of laughs. And drive, plus you'll have lots of laughs driving your buddy home. Here is Mike Staff and our special guests, JJ and the Morning Crew. Much of what you guys were doing on the air then may seem mild now. But then it was really pushing the limits. Were you, would you guys get a lot of uh, complaints? And do you oh, remember any of gosh, them? I sure. remember one time I was doing Coleman Young, you know, impersonating him. And he, he had a, a foul mouth, you know, and he, he wasn't afraid of swearing in front of the media on a, on a live uh, live microphone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, anyways, so anyways, they asked uh, 
They asked the Bruiser Band to come over uh, next door and do the Kelly and Company show, play a song on Kelly and Company TV show. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so then I'm, they're interviewing me. And what other voices do you do, George? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I do uh, George Kell and I do uh, Dick the Bruiser, you know, as you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I also do Coleman Young. Oh, can we hear a little? And so I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> what the heck? And as soon as we get these goddamn suburbanites, you know. <laughs> Oh, it's our sister station, my goodness. Yeah. We heard about that. I am sure. Well, we used to do break the rules a lot, and, and we were part of the reason they got changed, I think. We, one day, and I forget why, but we, there was a story, and we just randomly dialed the White House. We had the White House main number back oh. in those days. Here, here's what it was. Here's what it was, because I thought about this the other day. It was when the Republican National Convention was in Detroit. 1980. 1980, yeah. and we got the number. They were. We found out that they were staying over at the uh, Dearborn. Now, uh, what was the big hotel out there? The Hyatt. The Hyatt out in Dearborn. Maybe it was that building. I don't know. But you're yeah. right. It was. And, and we and we you know phone phone jammed into there. You know their extension. Was, because in the old days before they figured it out. Yeah, you had eighty two twelve. All right, eighty two oh six, and we're just randomly going <laughs> through this, and some guy That's picks awesome. up the phone, and uh, and then of course Jim takes it from here. Well, it turned out to be John Dean. Oh, jeez. So we didn't. We weren't off the air for more than a point two seconds when we get called into the general manager's office, and there's a lawyer on the line oh, from the geez. White House, from the FCC. Oh, oh man, my God. that is crossing a line fast, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, that was that's probably as tight as my sphincter has gotten <laughs> doing radio. That was pretty scary because you know. At that point, Ooh. money and contracts wouldn't have mattered. Oh, was, sure. You know, a- but there was another time, similar circumstance. You know, they do the uh, big uh, ship parade every oh, summer this for, is the, a good one, yeah. for the 4th of July celebration. <laughs> they, on, on the Detroit River? Yeah. 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 And, so, and then they dock at Hart Plaza, and I forget even what the ship was. It was like some destroyer. But it was a U.S. Navy commissioned ship. These yes. guys were still sailors and active, all of this stuff. Active duty. Yeah. So they wanted us to come down and do our show well, from well, there. No, no, we figured out, you know, it would be neat to, to do the show like uh, on Truth or Consequences, you know, always Bob Barker would do a bit and then a guy's girlfriend would be in, involved in it and then they'd propose <laughs> or something goofy like mm-hmm. that. And, and then uh, Bob Hope would always go out and uh, he'd bring the uh, the eye candy with him, you know, have, mm-hmm. the, have the babes up on stage and stuff. So we figured we better have some gals on this show. You know, we can't just go down there and Well, yeah, but the other of... guys, there's just sailors who are right, been at course. sea for a while. <laughs> right. Yeah, some female yeah. company. So we called a bunch of strippers. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we, had, we had no idea that they would actually take their clothes off. But, um, well, the, bot, the punchline to all of it was that morning was family day aboard oh, the ship. <laughs> so all of these sailors who have family in the area, their wives and girlfriends and kids and moms and dads were all on board the damn ship. And we look up all of a sudden, and here's this guy came down. the captain oh, of the geez. ship in his dressed whites with his hand behind his back, looking like he was going to just explode, explode yeah explode. His, his veins were popping out and he comes marching down the stairs and he goes up to johnson he's this is a united states naval vessel do you and know it, the meaning of the word decorum and in one second 
I can have my uh, the, I can have these guys. You know, the security. What do they call them? Uh, MPs. And throw you right off the boat. I can have you off the boat in five seconds. You know, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It would have taken these guys three. I mean, it was. That like, was another uncomfortable phone call right. after the show that day. <laughs> it was like sick and boys, and we'd have, we'd have been toast. We'd have been in the river, and that's oh, the last yeah. you would have heard from us. But, <laughs> and uh, in retrospect, it actually makes sense to think that strippers would strip. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, who, who knew? I mean, yeah, uh, well, I mean, what are you going to yeah. do? We're just trying to be friendly with the boys. Take care of our servicemen. Entertain the troops. That's right. On the air, Jim, um, playing the straight man, uh, so casual and cool. It, it, you were also like very disapproving of some of the things that the bruiser would say, and it seemed like just to offset it. So if you were kind of like, eh, then the listeners might not be so tweaked you know by it. Yes, and that's a formula that still works today, and it worked in the 1920s right. when people were doing radio gigs back then. You know, you've got the yin and the yang, you've got the plus and the minus, and as long as you can balance mm. the feel, the good and the bad, and not only that, you know, sometimes, not as often, but sometimes the role would be reversed. I'd say something untoward, and one of the characters would jump in and say, oh, J.J., or whatever the case may be. <laughs> Covering for each other. The, yeah. voice, the voice of reason from, <laughs> right. from unreasonable people. I don't know. What were some of your favorite uh, Meet the Bruisers? Those, that's such a great bit. One. There's one. The, the most historical one of all, which has lived oh, on the, forever. The drunk, the drunk Meet bruiser. the drunk bruiser. Right. Oh. <laughs> it, was a, it was an educational thing the Michigan State Police were doing uh, about the, uh, uh, you know, the effects of drinking and driving. So they came in with a breathalyzer machine, and George's job was to drink. So <laughs> and drink I did. For real. Shots, <laughs> yes, on yeah. the air shots. And then every... I don't know, 15 minutes, half hour, hour, whatever the bit was with these guys. And they'd measure us, and, they, mm. and they'd say, okay, well, here it is. And then he'd have to perform some kind field, of a test. sobriety test. Nice. So at the end of the day, like 8.40 in the morning, he's had, I don't know how many I'm, shots I'm by blotto, then. He's, I'm he's I'm, gone. I'm doing about a .22 <laughs> right then. And I'm, I, even then, I'm saying, that, you know, enough. I, I don't think I can take any Right, right. And, and so, but he still has to do meet the bruiser, uh-huh. the whole like two or two and a half, three minute long well, dissertation about drunk driving. I think it was. It's a minute and a half normally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know when you have to stumble at the beginning of every paragraph because because you're out of breath. Uh, it took about three three and a half minutes to get through it. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal, and I, I know that exists still somewhere on tape, but it's uh, it's hard to listen to. But then I had to give the fucker a ride home. Oh, jeez. And guess what? And guess what? What? You got pulled There's over. There's still puke all over the side of that car. With his head sticking out of the window, he puked all the ride home along the side of my car. It must be true, because I don't remember. <laughs> Taking one for the team. That's right. That's right. That's, that's public. Public service, you know, that's that's what you do when you're a responsible broadcaster. I, I recently heard a Meet the Bruiser with the sperm bank. I don't know if you oh remember God, that. I don't but, even remember that one. But it was, it was just great mm. reminiscing. I don't remember, but I can imagine the substantial penalty for early withdrawal. <laughs> right, that's exactly uh, it. That's funny to remember that. <laughs> what else? Uh, I don't know. I, you know. The obvious joke, but yeah. <laughs> How about learn to spell with Darnell? Oh, that's what we weren't going to talk about. Oh, really? <laughs> 
Well, look, it was a different time. It was a different time, yes. It played, it played and that well. was look, that was the one bit that I did in the history of our career. In the, in the 20-some years yeah. we were together, that's the one bit that was mine. And we don't want to talk about it anymore. Enough said. Sweep that under the rug. Sweep that under the rug. Next topic. But I hear that every single day, and people want to hear those words. And, and, and for me... It's still such a funny, funny bit that I come up with words to this day. I come up with new Darnell words that I weave into sentences that are great. So, so good. Um, You you see them today, very similar uh, Mexican word of the day. You mm -hmm. see those in memes on Facebook all the time, Mm -hmm. and they got the guy with the Mexican hat on. Yeah, yeah. July, J-U-L-Y, right? (laughs) And, you know, I told the politician, July. (laughs) <laughs> right, July. That's a lame one. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that wasn't mine. I'm no, saying you right. still I, see I, them today. I'm not responsible for these. <laughs> mine were a hell of a lot better. Much yes. better. And the music helped and all that, too. You know, so. mm-hmm. Do you guys remember uh, the free concerts down at Heart Plaza? Rifted a lot of those. Yeah, absolutely. Also, the Bruiser Band played. Yeah. yeah, the Bruiser. And what are, you guys remember what other bands were playing the at the look the, oh yeah the look Bittersweet alley oh yeah rhythm core was rhythm, rhythm core, core was part core, of it yeah, yeah, we in were... fact before that even at w4 we had a show on sunday night called homegrown mm. and we would have uh people submit tapes for homegrown and we would play those tapes on the air sunday night for an hour and then at the end of the day we had this great concept of let's make an album of all these homegrown artists well the rockets were on it mm. So good. Early Rockets, Rhythm Core was one of the bands. I know Bittersweet Alley was on it. I know The Look was on it. And, and a handful of others. And then we had a contest for our listeners to design the album cover for it. Mm. And we had one drunken night over at my house in Pleasant Ridge where the whole staff got together. We poured over all of these album covers and then finally came up with the uh, the winning album cover. And that person got a prize or whatever. But cool. the cool part about that was we somehow convinced the Detroit Institute of Arts... <laughs> To put them all on display as an art exhibit. All of these homegrown album covers. It was great. Well, it's, it's such a part of the rock and roll history of Detroit, though. I mean, it fits. Right. It's a good thing. So it was all those bands <clears throat> that right. carried through during that time period that ended up playing those uh, gigs at Art Plaza. Well, yeah, that, but Jim, you should take big credit for that. I, seriously, the, Jim was a driving force behind that. His name's on the album. He wrote the, uh, the epilogue. Uh, and, uh, yeah, good work.
reason was I couldn't get a hold of you to break your dick because I got in a terrible car accident on the way from Riff over to the XYZ commissary next door. Car accident? Wait a minute. Hold on a second here. Why? You, you go back and read the newspaper, Jim. I can't help it. I this heard is you, personal business. I heard you out of the corner of my ear lying again. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. He was hit by a car. Is that what happened? Dr. Friedman, nice of you to, uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I know better. Oh, dear. And now, again, again, his credibility is at stake. That's twice. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. I have a good credit rating. I belong to Diners Club. Oh, how wonderful. Do you ever use the card? You certainly didn't with me. Oh, Joe. Here is Mike Staff and our special guests, JJ and the Morning Crew. Talk about Arthur P. a little bit and your relationship with him. And you guys got any good stories about Big Daddy? <laughs> Arthur P., Bigger than life, yeah. Uh-huh. Bigger than life. What a character. God love him. I mean, he was He was good. He was good. Actually, uh, I understood what you just said more than I usually understand what Arthur says. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, one of the things, Art, I, I, I go back to my high school days listening to Art when he was on Riff. and uh, I was our, in elementary school. Our graduation party was going to be held at the East Detroit Memorial Field, and I think... I think uh, MC5 was going to be there or something. Mm. Not a well-known band. I don't, it might not have been MC5 at the time. Panala puts it on the air. Well, I leave my job at the gas station with intents on going to a party. By the time I get over there, the tear gas is in the air. <laughs> it was uh, a Donnybrook. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Panhala for you. But yeah. when he spoke... When he's vogue, people listen. Well, listen, let's go. Uh, we'll circle back to the beginning of this conversation where we talked about how this group was assembled. He was the anchor. I mean, he was, he was the guy. He was the foundation mm. of what they were trying to build there. So all the props to him. He uh, he started the whole ball rolling there. And I give him, he's the grandfather of FM radio in Detroit, as far as I'm concerned. Now, you can talk about Dick Kernan being there as a PD. And you can talk about Lee Abrams. Mm-hmm actually being there as the PD when he was like 16 years old, yeah, and they crazy. gave him that radio station. They were, they were PDs. Art was the voice and, well, the, yes. and the character. And he was the air presence of the, the whole deal. I mean, yep. if you put them all together, you got Art. Right. Yep. Yeah, he was he was that guy, no question about it. Um, crazy as fuck, but he was the foundation. That's <laughs> right. Well, he lived his life that way, there's no question. Yeah. How about Kelver? Talk a little bit about Ken. Ken's a funny guy. He is a funny Ken's guy. Ken's a funny guy, <laughs> smooth guy, lovable guy, you know. I just, you know, I like Ken. Ken was, uh, when I was in high school again, I had, you had to write a little paper for my radio class then, you know, who's nice. your favorite disc jockey? Ken Calvin was. was my favorite disc nice. jockey. Yeah. He was just smooth as glass, the he casual was. one, and <clears throat> he came by that name uh, honestly. Yeah, no doubt. Art said that uh, there's no better midday guy on radio than... <clears throat> <laughs> Except maybe now on WOMC. <laughs> Sorry, I got something on my throat. <laughs> Let's no, talk Ken, about you know Ken was part of the team, yeah, and he uh, he uh, inspired me a lot of ways. He was a good foil when we do the crossovers. He'd get a big kick out of whatever I was doing. That uh, that helps when you're when you're teammates. He's a very funny guy. He, he, I mean, you know, he he probably could have had a good career in stand-up comedy. He's that good. Sure. Um, just. All of them. Karen Savelli, just, oh. you know, the queen of the hop. And my relationship with her began years before that. I was working up in Lansing with a guy named Mark Addy. Oh, yeah. Mark Daddy Addy. Mark Addy comes down here to Detroit to work at W4. I come down on a weekend to visit him, and I go into this 
dimly lit studio with candles, incense, and marijuana smoke <laughs> funny. in the studio. And at that time, the board was uh, overlooking Jefferson Avenue through a big picture window on the second floor of what was once a bedroom in this old Victorian house there on a Saturday night at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, smoking dope, watching cars go by, listening to uh, album-oriented rock music just as it came off the presses. And he bro- uh, invited me down to come check it out. And I did, and Karen Sibeli was the one on the air, and that's when I first, and at that moment. said, I'm going to do radio. (laughs) Right, I want in. Well, I was already doing radio up there, but I said, I want to come home. I want to do this. Wow. And honest to God, and I I swear this stuff works, for me, that was like uh, putting the magnet on the refrigerator of the new car you want. This is my dream. I'm going to look at this every day. I'm going to make this happen. Yeah. My dream was to work on that station at W4, and God damn it, it happened. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I thought it was with Karen. That was your dream to work with Karen. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. Uh, anyway, but that's how I met her, and uh, we became friends and, you know, corresponded a little bit during that period of time. I, it was probably another year before I got uh, to have the chance to work there, but it came mm-hmm. true. Yeah, it sure did. When So you guys left W4 to go to Riff. Um, Howard Stern came on not long after that on W4, right? I don't want to say maybe uh, six months to a year, George. Something like that, yeah. But he never had the popularity. He wasn't Howard Stern then, though. To be fair to Howard, because I have undue respect for the guy. Of course, he got to. Yeah, I mean, he's the king of all media. Yeah, (laughs) just ask him. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But I have the, the greatest respect for him. But frankly, he was not Howard Stern. He did not become Howard Stern. Until he moved, I think, from here to Washington, Washington D.C. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Washington. Yep. That's when it developing. That's when it then... kind of started into a shtick. And uh, thank God he wasn't Howard Stern. He was here. Yeah, right. He kicked our ass, George. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> wow, well, could have been. Could have. Yeah, 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 of you know, course. Who, who knows? But, but he gives. Uh, listen, in fairness, if you look at his movie, or if especially you look at his book, sure. he gives great props to uh, this market in he Detroit. Does. Yeah, and it's uh, he laments the fact that he couldn't make it here at the time. Right. He, he did this bit recently where he was talking about him being a W four, and he says across the street there is this guy Arthur P, and he would just say baby. Baby, like he wasn't even getting it right. right. He goes, "How do you compete with that?" <laughs> <laughs> you got to be from here, you know. Yeah. And uh, and Riff was kicking W 4s ass by the time he got there. W four was, was on its way yeah, out. It, it was brutal. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was it was Howard Stern and then country and western shit. Oh yeah, they had already flipped formats. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. And that was his swan song. <laughs> so then you guys were at Riff for six. It was six years. Yep. And then you went to Wheels. Yep. What made you leave Riff? Money. That's it. No, Saturday's off. Yes, that was the 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 sticking point. They were going to match the money. They would have. They probably would have. But also remember, at that exact moment, the station had been sold. ABC had to divest itself Uh, of their AM station, and they had to divest themselves of other stations around the country. Riff was one of them. So we were sold to a uh, a small single shingle company. Was it Silver Star? George was the name of the company. I think. Silver Star Communications. I, I don't remember. Because I think I remember we called them Falling Star Communications oh, right. after that. <laughs> so um, that was going on at the same time. So new people were coming in. Our contract was up. And then we had made it well known that we were done working Saturdays one way or the other. And their first entree when they came to negotiate with us was, Saturdays are not negotiable. You're doing them. Mm. We said, fuck you. We're out of here. Yep, that's it. Yep. 
Yeah, because they they eventually said, "Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute." Well, right, and it was too late. late. You're like, "Yeah, yeah. we gave you your chance." Yeah. So, um, when you look back on Riff, we're we're approaching almost 50 years on Riff. What do you think it is about Riff that resonates in Detroit so personally with its listeners? Same thing that it does with its personalities, and I include TV in that. Detroit's Mm -hmm. one of those markets where if you're here long enough. I don't care if you're good or not good. It doesn't matter if you stand the test of time. It's a issue of longevity. You command the loyalty of this wonderful <coughs> Detroit audience. And Jim's been here 40 years. So 40 that, plus. So that's why that's why people <laughs> like him. It's not because he's any good. That's right. No, it's, it's 48, by the way. But yes. And so it's true of personalities. Mm-hmm. I think that that same kind of thing is why Riff has stood the test of time. Those call letters have been a fat part of the fabric of people's lives yeah. from the minute they grew up. Certainly people our age, and they've been able to, to their credit, they've been able to evolve with those people, hang on to them, and then evolve to a point where they can still attract some of the younger audience as well. Yeah. And, you know, and you know what you're going to get. It's still rock and roll radio station. Right, you turn it on. You know, and you they they, they decide to go this way for five years and then go this way for six years. And then, well, we're going to call it this, but, you know, the call letters are this and the frequency is this. No confusion. It's, right. one, it's 101. Well, I think there's an, an authenticity, too, that Detroiters can sniff out bullshit pretty quick. And if, if there's going to be a, especially like a morning show coming into Detroit and they're not Detroit. Right. I mean, it's just not going to fly. Yeah. I found this old article in the news, and it's dated uh, August of 1979, and I thought it was very, very interesting. Um, it says, George was quoted as saying, at 22, Bayer has, uh, has time to wipe out disco and still pursue his own personal goals after J.J. and the morning crew are a thing of the past. Quote, I'd like to keep doing this as long as it keeps happening, but not to the point where it feels like a job, he says. I don't think I'll retire at WRIF, but I don't think I'll do anything else creative. You have to be into this job in order to do it. I'll save the last for myself. Very true. It, it just at twenty two, that's awful prophetic yeah, for a twenty two. I, I was pathetic and I, and profound, <laughs> <laughs> very profound. <laughs> and now I'm rotund. I don't know. <laughs> so, do you guys keep in touch pretty regularly? Well, we've had a beer or two over the years. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. You know what, though, I think we were both. Pretty similar in this. While the riff days were a little bit different when we were younger and we did events together, I don't think any one of us would say that we were like a radio family. Like we wouldn't go hang out together. Like we wouldn't have our wives, uh, you know, over for dinner at uh, somebody else's house in the industry. You get pretty. Um, absorbed into it while you're doing it. It's a pretty intense thing. So when you walk out the door of the studio at the end of a day, the last thing you want to do is some radio asshole. (laughs) So, so yes, we stay in touch, but it wasn't like Ward Cleaver and, uh, and, uh, who was the other guy? Fred Rutherford. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't play golf together or anything like that. No, I hate it. No, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. But when you see each other again, it's just like, no time has passed. And, uh, we met up uh, a couple of months ago for a beer to Mr. Joe's across the street here. And I was nonstop laughing for me. Of course. (laughs) He's still as funny today as he was then, if not funnier. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm still as much of an asshole as I (laughs) I was then as I am now. Yeah. But he paid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're on a fixed income now. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm waiting for somebody to fix it. 
<laughs> when we, th- we think about the history of WRIF, and we're doing these podcasts to be able to just document all of this really great stuff, and it's been awesome talking to you guys about this. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else that... Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. To, to be continued. Somebody, I mean, there's so much. going to hear this and call in or... They're, there email in or whatever they do now. Well, when Arthur was hearing, uh, was listening to the podcast, he was texting me going, this, we forgot this, right. we forgot that. Yep, and I said, yep. well, let's do a part two. So maybe yeah. if we think of it, we do a fine. part two. I'm sure you've <laughs> talked about the Riff Concert Guide, the biggest debacle in the history of that station. Don't talk about that. But it, was a, but it was a cool thing. It well, was just the they, concert, they, it was a printed. Had, I think Karen was telling me. You. You see, you've not seen one? Uh-uh. Well, oh, I've got 100,000 yeah. of them <laughs> in my basement. Yeah. yeah, I'm happy to give you an armload of them. You talked about ABC's money at the time, and uh, we, they came up with a great concept. It was the Riff Concert Guide. It had all the uh, seating diagrams of the various arenas around town and this and that, and then had little profiles of the air staff and, uh, and then some little ads and this and that from many of our sponsors. It's a wonderful publication. Problem is, they ordered like 250,000 of them. <laughs> True story. And, give them away. And they gave away 40 or 50. It just wasn't as cool as a dread card. Yeah, well, it was, it was bigger. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you couldn't put it in your, your wallet and all that right. stuff. And it was a hell of a lot more expensive. I can guarantee I'm you that to sure. uh, make. It was a high gloss, <laughs> oh, high. Yeah. Nobody would publish anything like that today. Yeah, never. And what? there's a closet over there somewhere, I bet, where there's still cases of them. Right. In in, in addition to your basement. In addition to my basement. We <laughs> yeah. all took it. Our it was like, please, can you take a box of these with to your 30, family? 30,000 30, 30, hectares of the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> right. <laughs> and riff concert guides. It's a long time ago. We didn't know about that stuff back yeah, then. It's all our fault. <laughs> but they did things well. And that was part of the, uh, that's also part of the magic. I mean, to launch that station even before we got there like they did, and to continue it while we were there, they spent a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They invested a lot into the product. But then you got to remember, those were that was a real radio company back then and a real TV mm-hmm. company. And then with deregulation, um, all of our uh, radio and TV properties all of a sudden became the property of investment bankers right. who had no history, no love in the walls mm-hmm. for what we were doing as an art. It was a commodity. And it was shareholders, and it was uh, profit, and um, they would do whatever it took to make sure that they made their shareholders and board of directors happy. The ROI, return yeah. on investment. Exactly. Didn't I hear that you were a little reluctant about going over to ABC at, at Rift because W4 was like a smaller company and you felt like it was cool, but uh-oh, corporate America, don't want to go to ABC. Um, I, You know, I <laughs> look at, I told you, but... I dreamt of that being my golden job to work at W4. Well, you know, you you get there and then you realize and you set other goals for yourself on top of that. And I got the experience at W4. I had those great days. Not only did I get to work there, I got to program the radio station. And I got to, with help from Lee Abrams, I'm not taking credit for this because he was a genius. But with him and me as program director, um, we ended up with no budget and a one-owner small little thing defeating the giant. Mm. And that was Riff. Yeah. And uh, that was rewarding. So, and then it became a matter of, uh, it became a matter of money. W4 was also sold at that time. And they brought in a new general manager that we didn't particularly like. I forget the guy's name, but they fired our friend Bartley Walsh. (laughs) And they brought this other guy in and they started doing some things we didn't like. Meanwhile, we get a phone call from Riff saying, would you like to come over here? And by the way, we're going to pay Twice a lot of much. fucking money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we said, uh, yeah. 
And we're going to bring Calvert, and we're oh, yeah. going to bring well, Savelli. Of course. It's going to be awesome. We knew. Listen, our careers were just beginning at that point. We, yeah. we, we had a future. We were looking towards it, and the future was to move on. Yeah. We were lucky. Yes. We I, were lucky. You, you brought it up earlier. It takes a lot of luck, and that we were lucky to be there where the timing was right. Um, yeah, but, you know, when you get your chance— and the door, you get your foot in the door, then you got to kick the damn thing in. That's it, yeah. And when we got over at Rip, then we really started kicking. Yeah, for sure. And you guys did. You kicked ass all the way through it. Kick I, ass! <laughs> kick ass rock and there roll! Go, there we go. <laughs> See, you can't talk about Rip without talking about art. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have a, a JJ in the Morning Crew Part 2 if we start thinking of some new stuff. You guys, sure you guys open is. to it? Well, Listen, find a sponsor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. I'm trying to remember, and I can't put it together. Didn't J.J. and the Bruiser go down and confront W4? Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. So what happened, it was really weird. I was programming it at at that time, and uh, the morning show actually was on Saturdays as well. Back, Back then... DJs did six days, and including Art. Art, Art worked on Saturday afternoon, uh, but uh, Jameen George did Saturday morning, and I got a call at home. With Mike Staff and our special guest, former program directors Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender. Apparently W4 was on the air uh, promoting the um, uh, bring a riff t-shirt to W4 and we'll mm. give you a W4 t-shirt in exchange. So we're caucusing on the phone. What do we do? We're getting all these calls, whatever. And so we worked it out, and they arranged a caravan. And they invited (laughs) people to come over to the radio station on 10 Mile in the Lodge. And when they got off the air, this huge caravan of people drove down to W4 all the way on Jefferson Avenue. And uh, there were hundreds of them, and they literally stormed the old W4 house and uh, wipe them out of uh, T-shirts and and all that stuff. So I mean, it was it was a weird street symbolic moment, but in a weird way, I don't think W four ever really recovered. The history of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts.